And welcome to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. David M. Rubenstein, a native of Baltimore, joins us for this episode, co-founder and chairman of the Carlyle Group, a global investment firm and a also a private equity billionaire. He's a celebrated philanthropist and an original signer of the Giving Pledge, also a lifelong serious student and scholar of history. He personally owns the only copy of the Magna Carta, and he's given generous gifts for the restoration or repair of, well, look it up online, you wouldn't believe all the places that he has supported and all of the memorials. And uh, we're going to talk about memorials with him, among other things. Uh, he's also an author. He's written a couple of books. Uh, he's also been the host of a business podcast and uh, did a TV show, Bloomberg's Wealth with David Rubenstein. It's quite a biography, and I wanted to give him most of his bona fides, but he's a somewhat modest man, believe it or not. Uh, certainly doesn't need to be modest with all these accomplishments. But I'm going to conclude before I get to the main reason that he is here with us for the episode by adding that he's chairman of the board of the Center for Performing Arts, the Council of Foreign Relations, the National Gallery, Gallery of Art, the Economic Club of Washington, the University of Chicago. I don't know if I left anything out, but I wanted to cover all that ground and give him his due. He's here with us mainly, though, to talk about an exciting and wonderfully educational PBS special series, Iconic America, Our Symbols and Stories, which he hosts and is executive producer of. And welcome, and I said Dayenu with all your bona fides, uh, longest guest biography uh, that I've read, but with good reason. Delighted to well, have you. Thank you very much for having me. I, I'm honored to be here. An honor to have you, and I would also like to, those of you who are listening and seeing us now, uh, to let you know that we're going to be talking about American icons, and I'd be interested in hearing from some of you. When you think of an American icon that symbolizes and has embedded in it American history, what comes to mind? We'll talk about those that have been covered by this series. But uh, first one is Fenway Park, and let's. I want to talk about baseball with you. Like me, you suffered having your mother get rid of your baseball cards, uh, but also were a Little League All-Star. Baseball is very important to me as well. Why start with Fenway Park? What was the thinking there? Well, baseball is uh, historically America's pastime. Obviously, basketball and football now are much more popular in some uh, respects than baseball. But baseball still has more people going to the games every year than the other sports. And um, I wanted to cover all parts of the country, and we look for things in the Northeast. And Fenway Park is the oldest ballpark in Major League Baseball, built in 1912. And if you ever go to one of the games, you'll notice for the advertisements, it says, come to Fenway Park. It doesn't say come to see the Red Sox, even though they've won four World Series in the last 20 years or so. But people emphasize and the owners emphasize the ballpark because it's so historic and so um, iconic. And, you know, many owners have thought about tearing down Fenway Park. Fortunately, that hasn't been done. And as a result, it's now a place that people go to just as much as they go to see the team. Well, it is an extraordinary place, uh, and you brought into the picture all the loyalty of Boston fans. You mentioned World Series in recent history, but for 86 years, didn't have a pennant. So you take up the Bambino curse, and that's a fascinating story in itself. It's not only that they traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees, which is why they call it the Bambino curse, but they even let Willie Mays go, right. and they even let uh, <laughs> you know a, a number of other great players go that uh, just defy belief. So there's that whole story of Boston loyalty yes. and uh, the great players. Well, for those who haven't paid attention to this, essentially, um, Babe Ruth, a native of Baltimore, my hometown, played for the Boston Red Sox, and he was a pitcher. Um, he did hit some home runs. He was basically a pitcher and a very good pitcher. But the owner of the Red Sox needed some money, so he sold 
uh, Babe Ruth's contract to New York Yankees for $100,000 in four installment payments. And uh, that began what was then called the Curse of the Bambino, which is to say, how could you be so stupid as to sell Babe Ruth for $100,000? The Yankees went on to win so many championships, the Red Sox didn't win anything for 86 years. And, uh, but it turns out, as you alluded to, that that wasn't the real reason the Red Sox had problems. They had an owner, Tom Yawkey, who for many years refused to uh, hire any black players. So they gave a tryout to Jackie Robinson, said, no, he's not good enough. They gave a tryout to Willie Mays, he's, and they said, no, he's not good enough. So just imagine if Willie Mays and Ted Williams had been on the same team together, you know, what would have happened? But uh, it was a mistake, and that was the real reason the Red Sox didn't do very well, in my view. Yeah, well, there was a question that was asked who was the best uh, hitter of the Red Sox, and the answer was, of course, Ted Williams, a splendid splinter. But I think that one would be hard-pressed to find a better hitter, period, except maybe Willie Mays uh, in Major League Baseball history. Uh, Ted Williams also, we should mention, was a great fisherman and uh, distinguished himself in, in a number of other ways. But you give the whole sense in this. And you don't have to be a Red Sox fan. It's our national pastime. You learn a lot about baseball and baseball history. And Tom Yonke was clearly a racist. I mean, there's no other word that, that, that fits him. And that story is important because it was the last team to integrate, wasn't it? Yes. Um, well, Tom Yonke uh, was not uh, penalized, really, by the, Red, by the Major League Baseball for not hiring blacks. He would argue that he couldn't find anybody good enough. The first black player he hired was a person who wasn't that great, Pumpsy Green, uh, a nice player, but a journeyman player. Um, I uh, uh, live in Washington now, and we had the same situation there. The owner of the Redskins, now the commanders, wouldn't hire any black football players. And so for 30 years, 40 years or so, uh, the Redskins were the only team in, in the NFL without a black player. Yeah, it's uh, many of the stories that you tell uh, have race as a kind of centerpiece. I mean, race is a part of our history and a part that's been ignored for too long. Uh, I always think of Richard Wright's line, he used the word Negro at the time, the Negro is America's metaphor. I mean, in many ways, you're getting at that whole process of how, in, in many of these stories, how African Americans did not fit into the picture of America and had to struggle, and women as well. I mean, you're telling that whole people of, people of color. It's a broad picture. It's a diverse picture. Well, look, when this country was created, uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote the most famous sentence in the English language. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. But the truth is that we didn't really mean that. He meant all white Christian property-owning men are equal. And so um, slaves weren't equal, women weren't equal, and so forth. So we've been struggling for the last 250 years or so to basically live up to those words, even though Thomas Jefferson really didn't mean all men, he really meant all white Christian property-owning men. But that's been the creed of the country, equality for everybody. And we've been struggling for, as you allude to, for, for nearly 250 years to kind of treat everybody equally, and we haven't really still done it yet. Well, a lot of that comes through in this series, and you go from Boston on the East Coast to Hollywood and the Hollywood sign, and let's talk about the Hollywood sign, because you get right. into the whole history of that sign, but also, you know, the factory of dreams. I mean, you give us a picture of, in the series of Los Angeles and so much about Los Angeles that uh, it's really quite illuminating. So for those who haven't visited uh, Los Angeles, uh, you may know, may not know, but there's a big sign on the top of uh, Hollywood Hills that says Hollywood. And it's kind of the symbol of the movie making industry. But the truth is, it turns out that it was made, the sign was originally said 
Hollywood Land because it was a land development company that built houses in the Hollywood Hills and were trying to attract people to their houses. When the houses were all sold, they eventually took the land part down and Hollywood just became uh, a kind of a symbol of movie making. But it turns out that there are no movies made in Hollywood. They're all made in Burbank or other parts of the Los Angeles area. Hollywood is really has nothing to do with the movie theater business anymore, though there is Grauman's Chinese Theater there, and there is the place where you can put your hands and feet or cement, which many Hollywood stars have, doing, have done. But if you walk around uh, Wilshire Boulevard or Sunset Boulevard and look for Hollywood stars in Hollywood, you're not going to find any. They're not there. Well, you found one. Sylvester Stallone makes an appearance, and uh, you actually yep. uh, <laughs> sit down with him and talk with him. I, I was interested in, in guests and, and the decisions that went into guests, because with Fenway Park, you got a couple of major comedians, Bill Burr and um, uh, Richard Wright. Yes. Well, um, I, you know, no doubt when you have Hollywood people or comedians or people that are in the show business, it'll attract viewers generally. So on one of my TV shows, I did interview Sylvester Stallone. And I do know him, and he's kind of a symbol of Hollywood because he's been doing this for a long time. Yeah, you've got also El Martino's daughter and uh, uh, Joan Rivers' daughter. Uh, right. Also Sherry Lansing, who, by the way, needs to be identified. I would tell the people uh, uh, <laughs> her name is not under there. She happens to be a friend of mine, so I was able okay. to identify her. But um, the, the sense of... How you select these people is what really fascinated me. There are people you know and people who you can go to? Um, well, I mean, I you can't get everybody you want. I mean, uh, the most famous Hollywood stars are probably not going to necessarily want to go on a PBS documentary. So, you know, you have to ask people, and sometimes they say, I have schedule problems. They say, well, how much am I going to get paid for this? All these kind of things. So you have to get people who you either know or who are willing to kind of uh, lend their name and their credibility to certain you're doing. So like Melissa Rivers, for example, um, she was willing to participate in this, and she's well-known. Um, but, you know, I didn't get, uh, I don't know who the most famous star in Hollywood is these days, but probably be hard to get whoever the most famous star is to do some of these PBS things. They're not, PBS isn't usually something that everybody wants to do in Hollywood. Well, you got a good writer, James Elroy. Uh, film, we were able to talk about film noir and also right. that, that suicide off the Hollywood. Uh, so can you talk about that? People probably don't even know about that anymore. Yes, a woman uh, jumped off the uh, Hollywood sign once and, and killed herself. And, um, you know, you can get to the Hollywood sign and climb up it if you, if you go through fences and other things. Yeah, I would say I'm not an expert in suicide, but I would think there'd be easier ways to commit suicide than going through the fences and getting up to the top of the Hollywood uh, sign. But uh, there was an actress who did commit suicide that way. And already we're getting some questions for you, uh, David. There's uh, a listener of ours, Robert in Los Angeles, who wants to know about some of the contenders for the American icon. We, without mentioning the ones that okay. are featured, what came in sort of close second or third? Well, I, I, we tried to do an eight-part series, so I had eight icons, and I wanted a, a different thing for each part of the country, more or less, so California, Texas, or the Southwest, Southeast, Midwest, and so forth. So we had different parts of the country, but, um, you know, if I do another series, I guess there are other ones you could, there are other great symbols. Uh, one of the great symbols of our country, of course, is the American flag itself. Uh, the Washington Monument's a great symbol of our country. Um, you could argue that, uh, the, the Frankfurt or the hot dog is a symbol of our country in many ways. There are many different ways to look at symbols. What is a symbol? A symbol or an icon is something that 
conveys a message to somebody in a very shorthand way. So, for example, many people who are um, in Congress will wear a flag lapel on their lapel. What, why are they doing that? Well, they're doing it because they want to say, I'm an American, I really believe in the flag, and so forth. Richard Nixon probably started that when he was president. Uh, now, just take the flag itself. When you see the flag, what does it mean to you? Well, it doesn't mean everything in the United States is, uh, is, is, is explained by the flag, but you know immediately, it, if you see the flag, this is kind of an iconic symbol of what the country's all about. And uh, so that's what icons are about, and I considered many different ones, and if I do another series, I'll you know, I'll have to go through all the other symbols that people have suggested to me. Well, you do have a flag. You have the Gadsden flag, and I thought maybe we could talk right. about that because it's okay. a fascinating story. It comes from Christopher Gadsden, a slave owner, and again, we get into issues having to do with race and this as well. Uh, but it's been a flag that has so many multiple meanings, and you raise a very central question here, a question that's always been on my mind. That is, why is a piece of cloth so important? I think is I'm paraphrasing what you ask, but... Right. Uh, these kind of questions, I think, stay with viewers uh, and are very important questions. But this flag particularly, I mean, this flag has been used uh, uh, in Hong Kong uh, in the rebellion. It's been used by uh, neo-Nazis. I mean, it's such a wide right. berth. It's extraordinary. Well, it, it shows you how things change over a period of time. For example, for those who don't know, the Gadsden flag basically says, don't tread on me. And it was used in the Revolutionary War to say to the British, don't tread on me, which means leave us alone. But in recent years, people who are against what the federal government is doing often would use that flag and say, don't tread on me. So, for example, if you look at film of the January 6th uh, insurrection in Washington, many people who went there were carrying the Gadsden flag saying, don't tread on me. So ironically, it was used against the British government initially. Now it's been used by some people against our government. And you also saw it in Charlottesville and you see it in so many instances where uh, sort of, uh, they're trying to, in, in some ways, co-opt the idea of the American Revolution and bring it up to a contemporary right. level. But you also, in the series, have a feature of a platoon that used it. Let's talk about that, because that's really quite poignant. And the guy Twist, who died as a result and everything? Uh, yes. Well, very often, um, flags get to be used for things that are were not intended. Uh, but there, there was a case um, where our military has used the don't tread on me flag you know, overseas and uh, one of the people uh was using that flag was killed um but um it's designed to uh evoke a certain anti-establishment um sentiment and i think right now those people that are protesting the january 6th or protesting on january 6th felt that the federal government was basically treading on them and they want to be left alone and um it's just the the irony of it is that it was a flag designed to be um, uh, against foreign governments, and now it's uh, often used against our own government. You also take us to uh, Stone Mountain, uh, and this yes. is perhaps the most charged racial thing of all in many ways, um, because uh, actually, in fact, you ask, uh, as an interviewer, uh, I re have respect for people who ask tough questions, and you asked a tough question of the Stone Mountain um, chair, Abraham Mosley, who is African-American, and Stone Mountain, I should just say, is kind of a combination of Mount Rushmore with Confederate idols uh, and Disneyland. And you asked him, you know, you're African-American. You think that's the reason that you were 
<laughs> appointed. Uh, and he said, well, the governor's my friend, and that's why I was appointed. He's a preacher, We should, I should mention as well. But I was struck by the fact that you were able to ask him that question, because it does seem strange in light of the fact that it celebrates yes. the Confederacy. Yes. For those who aren't familiar, Stone Mountain, which is about uh, 16 miles north of Atlanta, is the largest piece of granite that extrudes from the face of the earth. And it was used in the early part of the 20th century as a meeting ground for the Ku Klux Klan. Later, it was decided that by the man who uh, uh, helped build Mount Rushmore, he was he had the idea of carving Confederate leaders into the mountain. And while he was ultimately fired, the idea took hold eventually. And then, uh, amazingly, uh, three Confederate leaders were carved into the mountain. Jefferson Davis, uh, one of them, uh, Stonewall Jackson, another, and, and Robert E. Lee. And the, pres the vice president of the United States in 1972 went to dedicate this. Can you believe the vice president of the United States is going to dedicate a Confederate symbol? But it was the case. A Sparrow uh, Act, yeah. When the person you, you mentioned, I interviewed this, this man who is now the, the chairman of the, the kind of commission that oversees um, uh, this area. And I said, in effect, how can you as a black man uh, really um, be promoting this? And his view was, look, it's a, it's not, that's not the only thing there. There's a, there's kind of a, a Disneyland kind of park there. There are other things. And he basically was okay with it, I guess. But I, I didn't want to, you know, badger him about it. But it did strike me as a little strange to be an African-American and, and promoting a place that has these Confederate symbols. And for those who aren't fought, familiar with it, after the, the Civil War, um, the, gen the many people in the South said, well, we lost the war because we were outmanned, outgunned. We didn't have as much money, but our cause was righteous. And ultimately, they came up with the concept of lost cause. And the lost cause meant, well, slavery wasn't so bad. We were really fighting not for slavery, but we we're fighting for states' rights. And that actually, uh, we've seen recently, and by uh, some politicians mentioning, oh, well, slavery had some benefits, actually. People got to learn a trade or so, something like that. But the truth is, slavery was torture. Um, people were killed. People were mutilated. It was incredibly uh, devastating for the people that were slaves. And uh, But it turned out that 40, 50 years after slavery was over, many people in the Deep South began com coming up with the concept that it was really not a war about slavery. It was a war about state rights. And they wanted to memorialize this by having symbols of the Confederacy put various places. Well, it's uh, the glorification of the South uh, and the lost cause, too. Gone with the wind and all of that. And you also bring that into focus in the series uh, when you talk about Stone Mountain and when you bring it to our attention. Uh, even went to, uh, to visit uh, an old friend of yours and someone I've always admired, went down to New Orleans to talk to Walter Isaacson, one right. of our great historians. Uh, I mean, there's some very important voices that appear in the series. Uh, and uh, I wanted to compliment you on or the, Thank you. bringing those people in who really have something to say. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about Stone Mountain because it's so central to the whole question of monuments and uh, whether they should stand. Do we have history the way it should be or do we glorify, you know, what is... Right. A terrible was a terrible institution, slavery. Well, there are three situations. Let's suppose you have the Washington Monument or the Jefferson Memorial. Some people have suggested because Washington and Jefferson were slave owners, we should tear them down. In my own view, if you have a monument or memorial for somebody whose main thing that you're honoring them for is not slavery, then I wouldn't say we should tear it down. We should educate people about the good and the bad. 
but not tear down the monument. If you have a monument or memorial that is set up expressly, expressly to honor somebody because he was promoting slavery or he was promoting the Confederacy, and that's the only reason to do it, and there are some real racial um, reasons to do it, that is something that you might seriously consider taking down the monument or more if it's realistic to do so. It's not really realistic, in my view, to cover up the Stone Mountain because it's so complicated to do that. And I think it should be left as a symbol of what people believed at the time that Confederacy was a good thing, but that you should educate people. So if they go to Stone Mountain Park, there should be some um, ways of educating people about why people did what they did to put those uh, monuments uh, the way they are there on that Stone Mountain, but not to tear down something. Because I think if you were to tear down Stone Mountain, um, I think it would cause more uh, backlash than probably would create goodwill. It's also uh, a kind of cancel culture, really, trying to tear down Stone Mountain or saying we shouldn't read the Declaration of Independence because it was written by a slave owner, Thomas Jefferson. It's that kind of mentality. Yes. I mean, Thomas Jefferson had two slaves with him, and during his life, he owned about 700 slaves. How could he write that all men are created equal? Well, obviously, he didn't mean all blacks and all whites. And even Abraham Lincoln didn't think that blacks and whites could live together. Um, so you have to put things in context. The world has evolved a lot, and uh, but you have to go back and learn your history. And one of the things I've been trying to do with this series and other things I've been doing is educate people more about our history. The theory of history is that those people that don't know their history are condemned to relive it. Uh, that is to say, make mistakes over and over again. So I wish Americans would learn more about our history because I think we are making some of the same mistakes over and over again because many people don't know about our history. You were quoting George Santayana there, and it's a famous quote right, and one correct. that people should take to heart. Uh, I want to actually talk about this a little more with you, but Jim in Washington, D.C. has a question which I like uh, and I think is important, and thanks for the questions that are coming in here. Jim says, it seems that many icons that are popular at one point fall out of favor over time and sometimes even become seen with derision. What makes some icons sustain while others turn sour? Well, I think slavery has been a big issue. For example, uh, FDR really admired uh, Thomas Jefferson. So Thomas Jefferson died in 1826, but we didn't get around to a memorial to 1943. So over 100 years later, why did they wait so long? Well, and complicated. But now that we have the memorial, there are some people that think it's a mistake because we're basically honoring a slave owner. And, um, you know, so Thomas Jefferson also is now known to have had and probably six children with a slave, Sally Hemings. And I think his image has been hurt a bit because of that. But I don't think you should take away all the good he's done and ignore him. I think at the Jefferson Memorial, which I'm now involved with repairing, uh, we're going to have more educational information about Thomas Jefferson, the good and the bad. And I'm doing the same at the Lincoln Memorial and other places. I think you should let people know the good and the bad about history, not just one-sided kinds of uh, descriptions of things. But there's no doubt that People change. For example, Harry Truman, when left the White House, extremely unpopular. Popularity was 15%. Now he's an iconic uh, former president. Uh, my former boss at the White House, Jimmy Carter, uh, left the White House really in uh, a terrible defeat. Now many people think that what he's done post-presidency is actually admirable. So people come and go depending on many different things. It's a little like a stock exchange, isn't it? <laughs> it just fluctuates right. all over. Um, actually, I was struck by somebody you interviewed named Martin O'Toole in the series, who talks about Martin Luther King and says he's revered and he's iconic, but at the same time, he had his flaws. Uh, he was a plagiarist, uh, that's been proven, and he was also an adulterer. And so you have to weigh those things in the whole 
picture. It's like a gestalt or something along those lines, isn't it? Well, I mean, it was, uh, a, good, it was a point King, well made, I thought. Actually, interesting look, point. Martin Luther King um, had some, you know, um, you know, personal indiscretions, you would say. And what John Kennedy, a man I greatly admire, um, he had a personal life that you know, today you would be difficult to kind of justify that as for President of the United States. So, you know, it is once said that, or uh, said by many people, that nobody is a hero to their valet, which is to say when you get to be really close to people and you know all of their faults, you know, nobody's a hero. So I often say we had, when this country started, for example, we had people as leaders, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, Benjamin Franklin. Now, where are those people? Well, the truth is those people that we cite as great men of the early part of the, our country's history, they had their flaws too, and people criticize them. We just don't focus on their flaws so much. Um, the truth is today we have a lot of talented people. We also have a lot of people not so talented who get positions of power, and, and it's, it's sad when you compare them to people we had at the beginning of the country. Was there anything you were wanting to polemicize in this series, uh, something along the lines of what you just outlined in terms of your view about? Well, I, my main purpose is to try to educate Americans about how little they know about American history. So this is an appetizer. And hopefully people that watch the series will say, well, geez, I didn't know that. Let me go back and read something about it. Or let me go back and learn something about some part of history I didn't know about. So I can't, in an eight-part series, uh, change uh, the direction of American uh, history knowledge, but I can maybe have a little bit of an impact on getting people to just open their eyes to what they don't know and try to learn more. Well, you learn a lot in this series. Uh, it's a very, I think, gifted educational series as a gift to the American people in terms of the history that they can learn and the enlightenment that, they, that it provides. You were talking about lack of heroes or clay feet and how few people maybe are heroes to their valets or maybe heroes when we notice all their flaws or find out more about them. But you have as an icon the cowboy. And the cowboy is a hero yes. to so many people, remains a hero to so many people. Well, um, you look like you're roughly my age. You're probably a little bit younger. But um, when you. I was growing up <laughs> in, the, in the 1950s, um, I would watch cowboy westerns. And the Cowboy Westerns always shows the Cowboys killing the Indians because the Cowboys were good good guys and the Indians were bad guys. And so I thought a Cowboy was somebody that rode on a horse and killed Indians. And now I know that Cowboys are different. Cowboys basically were in charge of riding, the, the, of herding the cattle to the trains, ultimately for slaughter and for, for meat. Um, and, and these Cowboys actually were really good at that kind of task, but they weren't really uh, killing Indians. That wasn't their main ma mission. But Cowboys... If you watch television shows, you would think they were all white. It turns out that about 25% were African-American and about 25% were Latino. Um, and there were even some Jewish cowboys. So you don't see that on TV very much. But that's you know what I was trying to educate people about. And if you want to see cowboy culture today, you do what I did. and You go to the rodeos. The rodeos are where you can see people really uh, doing what cowboys used to do in terms of their ability to, de to deal with horses and steers and things like that. Obviously, they're not taking them to the train, but but it's a very common culture. Hey, you went to what's called the color rodeo, in fact, and brought in uh, cowgirls like Dale Evans and Annie Oakley. I right. mean, uh, there's, a, there's a diverse picture here that's important, I think, for people to understand, especially all that percentage that you mentioned about African-American cowboys. We even go from Buffalo Bill to the naked cowboy. We see a lot and learn a lot about cowboys. Uh, it's interesting to me, too, but I don't know if you've seen Yellowstone. Uh, the, yes. The, 
this is cowboy stuff against the, you know, it's cowboys and Indians again. Kevin Costner did Dances with Wolves, which was a kind of breakthrough movie that was sympathetic to the Indians. Not in ways maybe even Marlon Brando was, oh. but certainly in specific ways. Oh, the whole story of what Americans did to you know, the Indians take away their land is a whole separate subject and it's tragedy in many ways. But there's no doubt that we would the 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 uh, government of the United States would enter into treaties with Indians, and as soon as we entered into them, we kind of violated them, and so the Indians kept moving west and west and west, and eventually we told them all to be not all, but many to be in Oklahoma. Then we took that land away too. Well, you've got a lot packed in here uh, in terms of the reality of what cowboys do. It's kind of drudgery, a lot of the work that they do. And you've also got that sense of the Marlboro Man, the idea of the cowboy is right. independent and free and uh, heroic again. Yes. The Marlboro Man is probably the most effective advertisement done in recent decades. And basically, it was just a man looking like a cowboy sitting on a horse looking out on uh, the wilderness. And that apparently sold cigarettes. I guess people wanted to be like the Marlboro Man. And uh, it, it's amazing how people didn't pay attention to the fact that it causes cancer. <laughs> so now in your part of the the, the country, um, you're now in Northern California or uh, the Marin County area. Um, I have a part uh, that's coming on, I guess, uh, soon on the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, you're probably familiar with that. You probably go over it many times, right? Yes, indeed. So it turns out, to my surprise, I, di I didn't know much about it myself until I dug into it. It turned out that it took four years to get it built, not so much because it took the construction that long, though it did take a couple years, but there were so many lawsuits against it. I think roughly 4,000 lawsuits, because even in those days, people thought it was going to ruin Marin County, going to ruin San Francisco, and now it turns out to be one of our, um, I I'd say, iconic symbols of our technical prowess. Yeah, I'm glad you're covering the Golden Gate Bridge, and I think it deserves to be in those uh, icon in that iconic uh, group. And in fact, I've mentioned once again that um, let, let's just lay out the eight that have been covered by this series. Fenway Park, the Hollywood sign, the Gladstone flag, the cowboy, the Statue of Liberty, the American bald eagle, Stone Mountain, and the Golden Gate Bridge, which is the eighth one. Right. Uh, and again, I'd be interested in hearing from some of you who have iconic uh, uh, thoughts about what would be added to that list in your judgment and so forth. But let's talk about Statue of Liberty, though, because that's, again, one of those symbols that and, that has had so many. The fascinating part of it is this history goes back again to France and, and all of that, but has so has had so many iterations, so many yes. avatars, if you will, and so many meanings. Well, what people didn't really know, and I can't say I honestly knew it either until I dug into it, the Statue of Liberty was a gift of the French to the Americans, but not so much to welcome immigrants. It was really a gift to thank them for ending slavery. France had ended slavery earlier. So it was a symbol of Franco-American friendship, but also a symbol of, of the importance of ending slavery. Later, um, it became a symbol of welcoming immigrants to our country, but that was not the original mission. The, the famous poem by Emma Lazarus was put on after the Statue of Liberty was erected, and it had not originally intended to be there. So later, as Ellis Island was built near the Statue of Liberty, it became it came to be seen as a welcoming symbol of our country. And as we now know, and it's in the series, we weren't that welcoming to many people, particularly people who were Jewish or Asian or other kinds of uh, ethnicities that were not welcome in this country for a long time. I was struck by what you just said a moment ago, though, because what you just said is said by someone who has been somewhat of a symbol for xenophobia and anti-immigrant feelings, and that's Stephen Miller. He says, Emma Lazarus was in the beginning in terms of her strong identity for give me your tired, your poor. It was 
originally, and it's absolutely historically correct, it was originally about liberty and abolition. That's correct. It was originally about that, but as the statue, originally the chains were on the statue and they were being broken, but in the end, only one chain got put on the statue and that the foot, many people can't see it. Um, I, I would say that it became a symbol of welcoming uh, people to our country, but we've had a long history with not welcoming people. And in 1925, we passed legislation in this country that made it very difficult to immigrate. And so during the Holocaust, for example, because there were quotas on people who are Jewish coming in this country, essentially, we didn't welcome very many people who are Jewish into this country, and many of them had to be turned around, and they were sent back to, to concentration camps and, and killed. The famous um, St. Louis is a, a ship that was turned around, and uh, a third of the people on that ship later wound up in, in, uh, uh, killed in, in concentration camps. We did uh, a podcast, that is, I did a podcast with Ken Burns, who's a friend, and Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein. Uh, they did a as I'm sure you're probably aware, and in fact, some of your footage reminded me of Ken's uh, film on baseball, but uh, there's a great footage and, and very nostalgic. Um, but also, they did this recent, uh, it's one of our podcasts, uh, covers it, uh, on the Holocaust in the United States. Yes. And I wonder about your feelings as a historian and a historical scholar uh, about FDR and all of this. Uh, yes. You know, because Ken kind of said, well, FDR was pushed into a corner by a lot of uh, forces and anti-Semitism within his ranks and so forth. But there's a book called by Arthur Morris called While Six Million Died, which makes a case that FDR could have done a lot more and didn't. Yes. Well, I was, uh, I think, the lead sponsor for Ken Burns' uh, series uh, on that. There was a two-part series, I believe it was, on uh, the Holocaust in America. And I think Ken Burns did a wonderful job on it. Agreed. But essentially, um, the State Department in those days was virulently anti-Semitic. Uh, there were no Jews working there, and that those who were working there were very anti-Semitic. And so they did not really want to uh, uh, do much to save Jews in the concentration camps. When the, the people who escaped from Auschwitz came west with their report and explained for the first time to the west that, that people were being killed in these concentration camps, they just weren't being resettled there, they are being killed, the response in the United States was, well, we have other priorities. And so while there was an effort made to get the United States to bomb the, tra the, 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 tra the train tracks towards Auschwitz, it was ultimately decided not to do so. John McCloy at the State Department, among others, said, we have higher priorities and we just can't do it. So uh, many people died because of that. And uh, there was only one Jewish member of the cabinet, Henry Morgenthau. He did lobby President Roosevelt, but Roosevelt didn't really respond to him favorably on this matter. So bottom line, how do you see Roosevelt in all this uh, in terms of his culpability or his complicity or his anti-Semitism even? I would say, well, I would say that FDR, you know, he's trying to win the war and he had other priorities, I would say. It wasn't his highest priority. I wouldn't say he was anti-Semitic. I would say the State Department was fairly anti-Semitic. I don't think that's uh, beyond dispute. But I think FDR, trying to win the war, not just in Europe but in Asia, had so many focuses. I, I, I just think he never got a recommendation from his military people uh, to do this. Um, if he had gotten a recommendation from his military people or State Department, he probably would have done something, but he didn't. He only had a recommendation from Morgenthau. Well, here's Jim from San Francisco, and thanks for the question, Jim. You mentioned the Golden Gate Bridge, David. He says the Golden Gate Bridge was expensive in terms of both dollars and lives. Eleven workers died in its construction. Why is it important to build something iconic when we could build something utilitarian and safe? Well, um, you know, an iconic thing doesn't have to be something that's just a symbol that doesn't have a utilitarian use. Um, you know, I would say... Uh, 
the Golden Gate Bridge is a symbol of American technological prowess. It was the, uh, a complicated thing to build. We got it built in a relatively short period of time. Uh, probably couldn't be built much quicker today even. And it, it's kind of been a symbol of, of both beauty and, and of technological prowess. And therefore, I, I kind of think it, it is iconic uh, and the most famous bridge in the United States for sure. You mentioned a moment ago that you uh, did work with uh, pre former President Carter. What, what, were your, yes. what was your position there? I was the deputy domestic policy advisor to the president of the United States. I was only 27 when I took the job. I didn't think I knew anything, but I, I, I'd worked in the campaign. And sometimes, as we have observed, if you work in a campaign and it wins, you somehow get a job in the White House. So I was only three years out of law school. And since I managed to get inflation to 19 percent, I haven't been invited back in the government since then. Well, we also did a recent podcast with Jim Fallows, who I'm sure you probably yes. are familiar with. Who was, he, was, he was our chief speechwriter. Major speechwriter for Jimmy Carter and... Uh, did that give you access to people like Jim Clyburn, who you had in the series? Uh... Well, Jim Clyburn, I, I host a series um, uh, for the last seven years. Once a month, I host a dinner for members of Congress only, um, where I interview a great American historian at the Library of Congress. And we just had one a couple of days ago, and uh, that one was on Harry Truman. And so as a result of that, I... Um, I've gotten to know members of Congress like James Clyburn, and so I was able to get him to do the interview, but also he was interested in the subject matter, and uh, he's from South Carolina, so he was very interested in the subject matter of the Gadsden flag. Well, the subject matter is fascinating. In fact, um, here's Reed from Santa Rosa says, how about the Mississippi River? <laughs> iconic. It goes all the way back to Twain and all that. It's a, it's a good suggestion. Um, it, it is iconic, and... Uh, you know, it's uh, maybe one we should we should do something about. It's a, it's a, our biggest river in many ways and most iconic river. So maybe um, maybe when we put together another series, if we do so, I will call you for some ideas. And Colin says, were there icons that you especially wanted to include in the series, but then decided to not include? And why did you decide to not include those particular icons? Well, I only had eight. We were we we're doing this as a kind of trial to see whether. We, this series would catch uh, an audience and people would like it. Um, but there were a number of others we, we could have done. Uh, one we considered was Smokey the Bear, but in the end, we decided not to do that one. Um, and we considered Route 66. In the end, we decided not to do that one. Um, we considered many different ones. Uh, we considered the Washington Monument and some other things. But in the end, we, we kind of came up with a balance. And like anything in life, it's a balance. Um, in one of my side jobs, I am the chairman of the Kennedy Center, as you mentioned, and every year we have to pick five people to get a Kennedy Center honor. And so every year I got to pick between with the, with the people I'm working with uh, who we're going to honor. And, you know, like anything in life, you got to make a decision and you can't do everything you want to do. That can be maddening, can't it? I mean, just the sense it, of it, who you have to exclude and all the things are on your shoulders about having to select it's it's a bit of a challenge, and so that's why every time after the announcements are made, I say, well, I didn't make the decision. Somebody else did, so I don't get blamed. But <laughs> the truth is, uh, you know, whenever you're, you're, you're making a narrow decision of X number of people or X number of uh, symbols to, to kind of talk about, you're going to upset somebody. But, you know, that's life. It's a good way to describe life. Um, also, I want to talk a little bit about your Baltimore roots. Um, I've had occasion okay. to interview um, some pretty extraordinary Baltimore people. John Waters, uh, uh, for one, David Simon, and um, Barry Levinson, who I got to know really well. What is it about Baltimore? I mean, it's kind of a southern place in some ways, and yet it's not a southern place. It's produced— Well, remember— um that was where it was expected that Abraham Lincoln was going to be assassinated on his route 
to uh, uh, to, the, to the inauguration in 1860. It was thought that in Baltimore, which was south of the Mason-Dixon line and which was a border state, but slavery was uh, was still prevalent in Maryland. And so um, it, it's, it's it's a southern state in some respects because it's south of the Mason-Dixon line. But it had, Baltimore was more probably closer in some sentiments to uh, Philadelphia in many ways in the southern places. So it's a mixture. When I was growing up in the 1950s and 60s, it was the eighth biggest city in the United States. Today, it's not even in the top 20 because there's been a lot of white flight to the suburbs. And uh, the suburbs are, you know, are, are, you know, reasonably prosperous. Baltimore itself has had some real struggles with crime and and uh, drug abuse and other real real challenges. I, I'd say. Uh, what did Trump say about Baltimore? <laughs> I mean, you know, called it a dung heap or words to that effect, uh, which really hit a lot of people very hard and made a lot of people angry. You've got, by the way, in the series, the people of Stone Mountain, which I found fascinating as well. So mainly African-American people who are in Stone Mountain who actually live there. Yeah, well, many African-Americans uh, don't want to go there. And there, there are some African-Americans who, you know, feel that uh, Baltimore, for example, um, had a way of um, housing when I was growing up that was illegal. In the United States Supreme Court in 1948, it was ruled that you can't have um, restrictive covenants, which is to say you can't on your mortgage to say you can't sell a home to somebody who's black or Jewish. But Baltimore kind of did this anyway. And so I grew up in a Jewish suburb and a Jewish uh, kind of uh, area. And I didn't know anybody that wasn't Jewish until I was about 12 years old. I thought everybody was Jewish. Then I realized later not that many people are Jewish. But Baltimore was very rigidly segregated by race and ethnicity. And so growing up, it wasn't quite the melting pot that it now perhaps is, is a bit more of. I'll talk a bit about being Jewish. Um, we share that tribal identity, and uh, I was thinking a good way to describe David Rubenstein not only as a mensch, which I'm sure you've heard many times, but also as a macher. Uh, when you grew up, I don't know if you thought of yourself as being such an esteemed person of uh, such extraordinary heights that you've reached. But uh, I asked my son-in-law, who's uh, involved in the whole world of finance, and he said, oh, he's big, you know. <laughs> and my, my son-in-law doesn't give that kind of, I use another Yiddish word, covet or kavod, to too many people. Yeah. Um, well, your roots well, are what drive you still to this day, do you think, and, and make you a philanthropist and all well, that? I grew up, my parents were not college graduates or high school graduates. They dropped out of high school, and um, my father married my mother after he got back from World War II. I was the only child. And I, we, my father worked in the post office, so we didn't make very much money. So you kind of, when you grow up without, without a lot of money, um, you realize you have to do something on your own. And so I realized I had to get scholarships and do well in school if I was going to get anywhere. So I did believe in the American dream. And I kept believing that if you worked hard, you could get somewhere. Obviously, a lot of people in the country don't believe in the American dream as much as, as I did. And I got lucky in my life. Um, I built a business and it, it gave me the ability to, to get involved in philanthropy. But, you know, I, I uh, was bar mitzvahed. Um, I went to Hebrew school for seven years. But right when I was getting ready to be bar mitzvah, the rabbi said to my mother, he's a nice young boy, but I'm going to write this out for him in English phonetically because he can't really read Hebrew so well. So I guess I had seven years of Hebrew school and didn't really get much out of it. Yeah, probably like uh, a lot of Jews uh, who can't read Hebrew or unless they uh, take Aliyah or go to Israel. Um, there's another question for you about the Underground Railroad. It didn't exist in physical form, but couldn't you uh, include that uh, in terms of America's racial history and concentrate on it as an iconic? Well, we could do that. I've written, I've read many books about it, and I know it's a, it's a very important subject, but it was harder to kind of do it in a visual way. 
because what would you visually go do if you were going to do a, a, a show on that? So there, we, I didn't focus on that one. But the Underground Railroad, which often passed through Maryland, was an important part of, of the, the end of uh, slavery because that would enable people to, to escape from slavery in the Deep South and then head north. And then one of the most famous people who escaped was from Maryland, and that's uh, Frederick Douglass, who did spend some time in Baltimore before he, he went further north. Um, and he used the Underground Railroad with his uh, uh, first wife. Yeah, I had mentioned uh, interviewing some famous Baltimore people, and I remember I did not, it was an onstage interview with David Simon, uh, and he talked about the drive he had. And I wonder about your drive, just for a moment, I want to get back to that, because, you know, you come, we come from sort of uh, humble roots and you have the whole Jewish tradition involved perhaps in your life in a significant way and everything, but... How do you account for just the fact of wanting to do good and wanting to accomplish a lot and wanting to get the recognition that goes with well, it? Well, you know, um, I, I have nothing wrong with psychiatrists, but I've never gone to a psychiatrist, so I haven't uh, analyzed myself in that way. But I would say that uh, my parents, uh, you know, maybe believe that I could accomplish whatever I wanted to, to do, and I kind of wanted to make my parents proud of what I would do in my life. And I, if you ever watch any of my TV interviews, I invariably ask people, did your parents live to see your success? Because to me, one of the, the greatest pleasures in life is seeing your children succeed. And, uh, you know, if you succeed, but your parents didn't live to see it, it's not quite as, as much of a thrill. So my parents did live to be 85 and 86. And so they saw me accomplish much more than they ever expected I would accomplish. And so I, I'm glad I was able to make them proud. And, um, you know, I, what drives me, I guess it's just the feelings that you often have when you grow poor and, you know, insecurity. Is all this money going to go away? Is all this attention going to go away? Is somebody going to say, hey, get off the stage here. You're not really uh, as good as you think you are. So I'm always, you know, I'm doing what I now call sprinting to the finish line. I'm trying to get as much done in my life before my brain or my body collapses. I'm now 73 years old. And at that age, you know, a lot of people, you know, have problems. And so I'm trying to, you know, avoid the uh, bad things happening to me before I get done all the things I want to get done. It was nice of you to think that I'm younger than you. I'm actually a little older than you, but I don't think either one of us is going to get a monster park hit in Fenway Park over well, there. Oh. Well, I'd say you look, you look younger than me. <laughs> nice of you to say. Um, here's Susan from Easton, Pennsylvania. Says, many years from now, how do you want to be remembered? Well, obviously, you can always say is the oldest living man who ever lived and all that. But uh, yeah, I'd like to be remembered as somebody that tried to give back to his country. Um, I um, Much of my philanthropy is what I've called patriotic philanthropy, which is to fix monuments, memorials, preserve historic documents, and get people to know more about our, our country. So I suspect my obituary will say co-founder of the Carlisle Group and kind of leading patriotic philanthropist, I guess. But I guess giving back to your country is one of the the things I, I'm most proud of having done, and I'm glad that people um, are, appreciate what I've done. You have children, David? I have three children. Um, they all are um, in uh, private equity, so that's either good or bad. I either did a good or bad job so they're in the investment world. Well, the real they question is, have they made you proud? Well, um, they are in the process of doing so. They always did. They all went to very good schools. They all did well at places like Harvard, Stanford, Duke, and so forth. And, um, you know, so sure, I'm proud of my children. And, um, but, uh, you know, I want to make sure that they're continue to be proud of what I've done. So I'm kind of keep working hard to make sure they don't have to say, well, I don't want to tell you who my father is.
There's a lot of nachas there. Um, I, again, I'm using tribal language here, and I don't mean to exclude people from that, but uh, it's just the joy you get from your children or the, uh, the pride you get in them. Well, Where did the spark well, come from for you to, with respect to history? What, what sparked um, that? What was the catalyst? Well, I, I guess I wasn't a great student in the sciences in college or high school, so I probably I drifted towards history and I knew more about it. But I think, to be very uh, direct, when you work in the White House at a young age, uh, you get a sense of history. You're in the same place as famous people work. And while I wasn't president, you know, a lot of famous people uh, worked near where I worked. And um, so that's one thing. I've lived in Washington for 40 years, so I've lived amongst the monuments and memorials. And I also feel that's an area where there isn't as much attention being given. So there's a lot of attention being given to STEM education, for example, or artificial intelligence. And I've been looking for things where there wasn't as much attention being given, and I can maybe play a role in, that, in, in, in educating people about history is something, American history particularly, something where I thought I could play a, 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 a modest role. Well, you played a central role, I think, and a very important role. And the real question at this point would be, what would you like people to learn about American history specifically that you feel they are, you could be as general as you want to be here, that you feel they are sorely uneducated in? Well, I wrote a book about this, uh, about the it's called American experience, and it basically says that we, 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 entered into an experiment. It's a representative democracy, a Republican form of government, with the idea that all men are created equal. And we've been trying to live up to that dream for such a long time. And so I'd like people to know that we still have a long way to go before everybody has an equal opportunity and everybody can, based on their merits, rise up in our society. But I don't think there's any better society. Uh, we have 50 million immigrants in this country. 50 million people have left their country to come here. And that's because we have benefits and opportunities and that no other country really has. So I want people to be proud of our country, recognize that we have some flaws and we ought to work to fix those flaws. But I, I think people should be proud of America and try to, you know, um, uh, live, live the American dream the way I think we, we should like our people to do. Well, the series focuses on some of the problems with immigration, particularly uh, when children were put in cages and that sort of thing. I mean, which is reprehensible by anyone's standards. But at the same time, you've got people who will say, what's going on in Texas now and so forth. There are too many immigrants. We can't sustain all these immigrants that are coming in. We can't, we may be the open arms and think of uh, those words again on the Statue of Liberty, but just can't sustain it. And yet we've got all these wide open spaces in America, up in Montana and so forth. Well, um, look, um, I would say Democrats generally uh, have a view that we should let immigrants come in a little bit more freely than maybe the Republicans do. I think the Republicans have a view, I think, that many of these people who come in as immigrants are going to be Democratic voters, and their children are going to be Democratic voters, and there's a political element to it. And uh, I think uh, Barack Obama tried to have an immigration bill. He couldn't get one done. President Trump couldn't get one done. President Biden hasn't yet been able to get one done. Immigration is among the most vexing issues we have in our country because there's no easy solution. And I think what's happening in our border in the South is a tragedy in many ways, um, but it reflects the fact that people want to come to this country, but it's also uh, uh, we're in a situation where we don't really know what to do with these people. Do we make them citizens? How do we get let them in? Who do we decide to let in? Are they really political refugees? Do they really need asylum? It's a, it's a complicated situation. And like you said, it's certainly used politically. I mean, I don't want to be partisan in any way, but the Republicans have said, you know, open borders. That's so the Democrats can have more voter, voters. I mean, that's been the argument for quite some time. Yes. And, there's, you know, in the end, when you get down to everything, it's it's about politics in Washington. And right now, 
Um, I think that the country and the, and the Congress are divided. I think many people on the Republican side think that these are not going to be people who are going to be Republican voters, rightly or wrongly. And many Democrats are more sympathetic to the human needs, I think, of, of some of these people coming in. But again, there's no easy solution. I don't have it. I wish I did. If I had the answer, I'd be in Iowa, New Hampshire. Well, talk about things we don't have answers to, you or I or anybody else for that matter. Another comment here from a listener says, David has a great reverence for history. He must be very concerned for the future of this species, given how humans are impacting the ecosystem. Well, yes. Um, look, there's no guarantee that uh, humanity will live for uh, as long as the sun will be around. The sun probably has another four to five billion years before it's, it, it, it goes away. And we either have to find some other place to live or we're all going to go away in that four to five billion year period of time. Um, there's no guarantee that humans will dominate the earth, even if, even if uh, other animals are around. When humans first appeared as Homo sapiens 400,000 years ago, I don't imagine that the elephants and the gorillas and tigers thought we were going to dominate the earth. Uh, we weren't as fast or big or strong as they were. But they, in the end, our mind became the greatest uh, tool we had to kind of create the civilization we have. But clearly... Uh, we have a problem with, with uh, human uh, inability to control our use of carbon, and the result is that we are heating up the earth to a level that probably life at some point is not, will not be sustainable for humans. Well, on a much more pleasant note, I wanted to note uh, the fact that September 29th, 30th, and October 1st, you're trying, you and people working with you, trying to bring people together, trying to create some unity and uh, having this big event in Washington, D.C., you got 30 congressional representatives from both sides. You got thousands and thousands of people coming. This was like something that was done in Berlin and Delhi. Can you talk a little bit about that and give it some promotion? Um, this is the event in September you're talking yeah. to? Yeah. Um, well, uh, somebody that is close to me got me interested in this, and this is a world cultural festival designed to bring people together, and I expected uh, they'll probably have 125,000 people in the mall. And um, there is uh, a kind of a leader of this effort, uh, uh, and he has uh, just met at the White House recently with the chief of staff. He goes around the world talking about peace and the importance of harmony and, and, and uh, working together, and he's had some big impact on people. So I think it will be quite an uh, interesting festive occasion where Democrats and Republicans will be together on the Mall. One final question. Uh, that's a positive thing that's happening at the Mall in September and October 1st. I don't know what your view is. Bill from Charlotte, North Carolina, wants to know what your view is on the impact of AI on our future. I wish I knew. Um, I am not an expert in it. It's clear it's changing the world in which we live in. I have been trying to figure out how I can understand it better. Um, so I can't say I'm an expert, but I do think that AI will change the way we conduct our lives, the way we go educate ourselves the way we interact with each other. And I suspect some people will lose their jobs and new jobs will be created. But it's uh, clearly something over the next 10 or 20 years that will affect us dramatically. So who would have thought 25 years ago we couldn't live without Google, iPhones, uh, Facebook, uh, Netflix, and we, we've adapted these technologies. Over the next 25 years or so, I expect AI will be throughout our culture, but I just can't tell you exactly how it's going to impact us. I just don't know. As a major investment, uh, someone who's worked in the world of capital for right. so many years, you've had to learn a lot about technology, haven't you? Yes. Well, um, it's a, I have a firm that's got 2,000 people in it, so they, they, um, we have specialists, and there are people that know more about technology for sure than I do. I do think that uh, AI as a place to invest is, yeah, there are two schools of thought. One is 
that big technology companies will dominate AI, and therefore, if you really want to benefit from AI, go invest in Google or Facebook or, or Microsoft. The other school of thought is that the best new ideas will come from new companies being started from ground zero, and therefore, the best way to profit from it is invest in new venture companies. I don't know which one will prevail, but I suspect uh, you know, there'll probably be some great opportunities in both, both of those areas. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't, having someone with your background on, ask you a little tea leave reading about the economy and how things look in terms of the trajectory of it. They're pretty yeah. strong right now, actually. Numbers, yes. at least. Powell, uh, Jay Powell uh, worked at Carlisle. I hired him you know, a number of years ago. He was in our firm for about eight years, a very smart person. I didn't realize he'd become a chairman of the Fed. I think he would admit that he probably was a little slow to get on the... Uh, the recognition of how high inflation had become, but it's clear that what they've done over the last year and a half has brought inflation down to a um, level that's more tolerable than what we had. I do not see a recession in the near term. Um, I think that's more conventional view today. Uh, many people thought for a while we would go into a recession, but it doesn't seem to be, given the most recent numbers that came out yesterday on the uh, last quarterly uh, um, GDP growth, which is about 2.4%. So it doesn't seem like it's heading into recession. And our own companies that Carlisle owns uh, do not see any evidence of recession really in our businesses. So I think the economy will probably go through what's called a soft landing, which is to say not uh, have a recession and probably lower growth, but but not a recession. Well, that's encouraging. And um, it's also encouraging to talk to you because uh, there's so much that really came through of what you've been committed to and what you've helped educate us about. And uh, your own story is a little bit of a Horatio Alger story. It's really fascinating to hear what you've done in your life. And I compliment and give you high kudos. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. Um, you obviously um, are somebody that reads the materials before you interview somebody. And you're as well-schooled as anybody that's ever interviewed me about some of the things I've done. So thanks for taking the time to do that. Well, they can put on my gravestone, I've said many times, he did his homework. Uh, I want to also thank all who have heard this episode live today and all of you who will be hearing it on Apple or Spotify or on our website at graymatter.show. And a quick reminder, if you want to join our ever-growing community of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and receive the many benefits of membership, Go to graymatter.show. Uh, that's gray with an E. Special thanks to our inimitable Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team of Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and Jeff. And to this episode's special guest, David M. Rubenstein, I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.